take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians, last chapter, chapter 13. We have been on this journey for some while, but there is a light that is ever glowing at the end of the tunnel. I hope that you have enjoyed the trip. We probably have two more sermons after today. And then, Lord willing, we will move on to another book. Beginning here in chapter 13, verse 1. This is God's Word. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. That is more than enough for this morning. Quite literally, we will not cover all of those four verses. Current trends in American Christianity are, to put it mildly, very alarming. Leading Christian scholars of most any denomination living 150 years ago would hardly recognize what is often accepted as orthodox Christianity today in our society. This was really exposed a couple of years ago in 2022 when Ligonier Ministries conducted a survey entitled The State of Theology. You can find it at Ligonier.org if you are interested. Maybe some of you have perhaps read it. Let me share a few of the findings with you. By the way, of those polled, they are people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. They are not Catholic. They are evangelicals. Sometimes they might be called even Protestants, but they are supposed to be Bible believers. Almost three out of four, 73%, agree with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73%. Now again, these are, these are professing evangelicals who checked the box that said, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. And all the while, the Bible in no uncertain terms declares over and over that Jesus is uncreated. He is God Himself. In fact, He is the Creator. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The context there will bear out that the Word is in fact Jesus John 1.18, same introduction to John's gospel, same prologue. John says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's right 
side, or is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Romans 9, 5, Paul says that Jesus is God over all. These supposed evangelical Bible believers swung and missed when they picked that Jesus was the first yet greatest being created by God. And that's a greatly important, orthodox, foundational Christian doctrine. But that's not all. More than half of those same evangelicals who took this survey, 58% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, but also including Judaism and even Islam. In other words, Christianity is not the way to God, it's just a way to God. You can actually reject Jesus, become a devout Muslim, and still make heaven one day. 58% of professing evangelicals then would make Jesus out to be a liar who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door of the sheep. More than half, 53%, disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. What an affront to the holiness and righteousness of God Himself. I mean, our entire race was plunged into this condemned state that we find ourselves in by one sin. When Adam ate the fruit that God had told him not to eat. Not only that, James obviously says with perfect clarity, whoever keeps the entire law and fails in just one point has become guilty of all. That's all of the survey that I'll mention this morning, but it's, it's worth your time. If you know how to Google, <laughs> Google it. If you don't, get some young person out here to help you. Suffice it to say, significant numbers of professing evangelicals in America deny orthodox Christianity from the ground up. In fact, I think it's safe to say they've actually created an entirely new religion, something far less exclusive, something that will embrace even non-Christians as brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity. That's not an exaggeration, and that is shocking, and it is, it is sad. But it, but it hasn't all happened overnight. It's not like one day we got up and we flipped on the switch, and then boom, here we are. No, it was a, it was a very slow fade. It happened over many decades. And while we can point to governmental problems and perhaps even educational brainwashing, this morning I want to ask the question, how have churches contributed to the problem? And I think the answer to that is found right here in this text. Now without going into everything we've seen in the past several months, really the whole book, let me just remind you who Paul is writing to here. The, the church at Corinth was located in a very wicked society. So much show, so that the term Corinthianize became you know, a catchword that describes someone going into all type of various immorality. 
A Corinthian girl was the equivalent of what we would call today a prostitute. This was a very, very wicked place. And this church was not only set in this area, but many of these believers had actually been saved out of these various immoral lifestyles. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote this, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So some of these believers, they had come out of this lifestyle by God's grace. But as you might have guessed, some of these believers struggled to let go of some of these sins. And 1 Corinthians addresses head-on attitudes of divisiveness within the church, as well as several moral imperfections and even doctrinal issues as some in this church was actually questioning whether there is even a resurrection from the dead. To put it in American terms today, this church was a hot mess. And since Paul wrote that letter, some false teachers had weaseled their way into the church. Men, according to Paul in chapter 11, who were preaching another Jesus, not the Son of God Jesus, another Jesus, a different gospel. Things had not improved. No, left unchecked, the state of many in the church at Corinth had apparently declined. Their state of theology survey may very well have looked very much like the Ligonier survey from 2022. Well, now Paul is about to return to Corinth, and he is ready for a showdown. Something's got to give. The title of the sermon this morning is Establishing Every Charge. And in this text, Paul explains that he will soon visit Corinth with a whip in hand, but he assures them that even through this process, everything will be carried out in a very orderly way fashion, as we would expect. All right, let's work through this passage. Really, the first couple of verses is all we'll look at this morning. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The bulk of our time in this sermon will be spent here in this verse, really delving into precisely what Paul intended when he penned these words. Paul had invested much into these saints. Time, energy, even anxiety, he says. Blood, sweat, and tears, we might say. He had spent 18 months there laying the proper apostolic foundation when the church was established. No doubt Paul taught them Many things, doctrines, practices he certainly believed would settle them, keeping them on the straight and narrow for you know, many decades to come, but that was, that was just not to be with this church. Just a few short years later, four years or so, Paul received word 
that all was not well, and he penned a very pointed letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Paul actually had written them a letter prior to that. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. All we know of that letter is that he had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. We don't know anything else of that that letter. But that's enough to tell us that problems were actually brewing in Corinth before he even wrote 1 Corinthians. Well, not long after sending 1 Corinthians to the church, Paul received word that things were getting even worse. And so he took an impromptu trip to Corinth, often referred to as his painful visit, a visit in which Paul was confronted by someone in the church and Rather than the church supporting Paul, they just stood by and allowed it all to happen. And Paul left Corinth somewhat defeated, and he penned another letter, this time a scalding rebuke. We do not today have a copy of that letter, but it's been mentioned in this book. It's often referred to as the severe letter, and it was delivered by Titus to the church at Corinth. So at the time of the writing of 2 Corinthians... Titus has returned from delivering that third letter to the, to the church at Corinth, telling Paul that there was some repentance among the church. He was certainly glad to hear it. But he also had bad news that there were still some false teachers that held sway over many in the church. Well, now Paul was going to return to Corinth for his third visit And he expected anything but sweet fellowship when he got there. Back in chapter 12, verse 20, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Paul expected a showdown between himself and the false teachers as well as those siding with the false teachers. And he wrote back in chapter 10, verse 2, here's what he said, I I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Look, Paul did not want a showdown with these people. No, he desired repentance on their part, but he didn't expect it. That's clear from everything that he said up to this point. And then seemingly almost out of the blue, Paul references a verse in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19.15, albeit in a slightly abbreviated form and from the Greek Septuagint, but he references it nonetheless. Deuteronomy 19.15, I'm going to read it from the Septuagint. Here's what it says in its entirety. One witness shall not suffice against a person in any injustice and in any wrongdoing and any sin that he may sin. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall a word be sustained. So Paul, sort of in apostolic shorthand, writes, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I'm sure you can see the similarity there. Paul is obviously reaching back to Deuteronomy 19.15, and he's about to lay a foundation based on that. Well, that then brings the question, why is Paul making this reference? There are some who believe he's merely referring to his three visits 
as the two or three witnesses. That, that he alone is going to wield the sword of discipline when he gets there and his three witnesses so, so, or, or three visits sort of serve as the two or three witnesses. Well, that is a stretch to say the best. There is no way Paul's first visit was a witness. His first visit was not there for a purpose of discipline. Paul's first visit was very prosperous when he, when he preached the gospel and, and established the church. All was going well. And this third visit he's about to take is not for the purpose of finding out information. He's got the information. He knows what's going on. He's returning this time for the purpose of exacting discipline. And really, even more problematic to that idea is that such an interpretation actually undermines the entire meaning of Deuteronomy 19.15, which disallowed one man, one witness, from carrying out judgment on his own. That's the point of Deuteronomy 19.15. That has to fall on multiple people. And really, if we just look at the New Testament and its usage of that verse, the meaning is actually rather clear, at least to my mind. For instance, the Apostle Paul, same author here, in writing to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's clear what's being said. One person's charges is not enough. It, it takes multiple Charges, and that, that's consistent throughout the New Testament. Look back with me, if you will, to perhaps the, the most significant passage relative to this subject and this use of Deuteronomy 19.15. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So it may actually shock you to know Jesus did not come on the scene tossing the word church around on a regular basis. I know we use it a lot here. This is the day and age in which we live. But Jesus only used the word two times. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he uses it here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Really, Jesus' most common references to the kingdom of God. I don't have time to chase that down. But if you're interested, come to our new Wednesday night Matthew study because we will be chasing that down for quite some time. Anyway, 
Here Jesus, our Lord, the head of the church, lays out very explicit instructions regarding church discipline. If your brother sins against you, really, or or his oldest manuscripts actually read, and, and it really fits the context better, if your brother sins. That's the point. This is a step-by-step process. First do this, then do this, then do this. It's clear. It's not, it's not hard to follow. And this is a process that Paul most certainly knew about. Let's just work through this really quickly here in Matthew 18. First, if you know your fellow believer has fallen into some sin, confront him privately. Don't post it on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. No, go to him privately, one-on-one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I think it goes without saying this is not out of anger, and it's certainly not to gossip and slander about your brother or sister in Christ. This is to be done because you love them and you want their good. That's the point. Your prayer in going to a brother or sister in Christ should be that they listen, that they repent, and that their actions actually reflect that repentance, that change of mind. I've had some success with this very first step over the years. It often works and everything's fixed right there and nothing else has to come out. And that's good. (laughs) That's good. I think part of the problem with discipline in churches today is we are often unwilling, fearful maybe of our brother's response, but we are unwilling to take this very first step. I don't know if you noticed Jesus did not say, if you feel like it, or if you feel like they may receive it. No, if your brother sins, go to him. Look, we're part to blame for not following our Lord's instruction here. Anyway, this this does not always yield the desired results. It, It doesn't always change anything. In fact, sometimes someone becomes more hardened. And so... According to our Lord in the steps laid out here, He says, But if He does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Straight from Deuteronomy 19.15. Just like Paul quotes in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. There, There really are two obvious reasons for this. First, the accusing party the one that went to the other brother, right? The accusing party actually could be wrong. For instance, he could be, as a a weaker brother, trying to lay some law on his stronger brother that is little more than a preference and is not a biblical mandate. Maybe it's a scruple. And so these one or two others could squash that before it goes too far and maybe instruct the weaker brother. But the other reason is more obvious and contextual here to what Jesus is talking about, and honestly more likely, that these one or two could witness the unwillingness of the sinner to repent. And and along with their brother who went the first time, urge the sinner 
with even more intensity to respond to the truth of God's Word. The prayer is that this small group, still private, by the way, is able to win the brother back from whatever sin he is so committed to. But this does not always work either. And so, step three, according to Jesus, is to involve the entire congregation. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I know we all just are thinking this is so un-American. And it is. But first thing, Jesus wasn't an American. And God doesn't care about what our society thinks. This is right, whether it's American or not. If He refuses to listen to them, the, the original guy that went and the one or two others, then tell it to the church. Look, this is still an attempt to win that brother back, this time with the help of the entire assembly. Now, we're not told exactly how this happens. Maybe it includes more members going to this erring member, or it may come in the form of the church giving an ultimatum. Look, you got 45 days to fix this or else. We don't really know. But in some way or another, the entire church family is trying to turn the unrepentant sinner from his way back into fellowship with the Lord. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. So steps one, two, and three are all taken in an attempt to win a brother or sister back that has fallen into some type of sin. Morally, doctrinally, we're not limited in either direction. But even as persistent as that process is, it does not always work. There comes a time when the church must consider that this person may very well have made a false profession of faith. If someone is more committed to their sin than they are to Jesus, that is a bad sign. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote, 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared to us was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born by God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look, I know that was a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's really not that hard to follow. And it's greatly important relative to this text right here in Matthew 18. By the authority of Scripture, a persistence in sin rather than a, than a willingness to repent 
usually exposes a false profession of faith, a false convert. And so that's why Jesus here says, if the first three steps fail to accomplish the desired purpose, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. To them, those words meant treat him like an unbeliever. That's what they would have heard. When excommunication uh, occurs, when we vote someone out, that means the church can no longer put their stamp of approval on a person's profession of faith. When we exclude a member, we are withdrawing our corporate witness to their profession of faith no longer recognizing them as a brother or sister in Christ. It's, it's sort of the opposite of baptism. When in baptism, we affirm a profession of faith. In church discipline, we de-affirm a profession of faith. I don't know if that's good English, but it makes sense whether it's good English or not. Maybe it will be one day. Of course, look, let me be clear the church is not the final authority here. God is the final authority. We could be wrong affirming or excluding. We are not perfect at all in this. But someone's unrepentant sin is serious by the time it's gone through this three-step process. right? If, if a person is still willing to be committed to their sin more than they're willing to be committed to God, that means they are most likely an unbeliever. Jonathan Lehman with Nine Marks Ministries in, a, in an article entitled a, a Church Discipline Primer, here's how he puts it. Quote, Fundamentally, church discipline is about the reputation of Christ and whether or not the church can continue to affirm the verbal profession of faith of someone whose life egregiously mischaracterizes Christ. End quote. That is it precisely. So look, we, we don't exclude someone just because they go to another church. Maybe even if we differ with that church on a few things. No, what is going on here is that someone has embraced a lifestyle that is anti-Christ. Anti-God. Or they have, they have espoused some unorthodox heresy, and so much to the point that we are unsure whether they are a believer at all. This is about unrepentant sin, which improperly represents Jesus and the gospel. That's what this is about. And that is precisely what's going on here in this text in 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us for a while, you know that. More on that just a moment. Hang on. Let, while we're here, let me point out a couple more things. Verse 18. I only read this because I, won't, I know you've heard these verses quoted. We're going to quickly work through this. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Listen, this is not about binding the devil. Clearly. The context won't allow such an erroneous interpretation. This is about church discipline. Whatever you bind on earth will be... Bound in heaven. I mean, this is how God has, has chosen to work. And by the way, if you think you can bind the devil, please leave him that way. Don't, don't unbind him. 
Verse 19 is not about believers getting together and agreeing in prayer so that God will give them whatever they want. Again, this is the numbers are very clear. One plus two, I mean, one plus one more is, is two. One plus two more is three. That's the, that's the witnesses here in this disciplinary process. That's what's going on. Verse 20 is not about a church being anywhere two or three are gathered together. That is not the context. This is about church discipline. And the point that Jesus is making is that the Lord is with us throughout this entire uh, carrying out of church discipline if we do it properly. By the way, that ought to encourage us to do what Jesus said to do rather than refuse to do what Jesus said to do. So when you hear those verses ripped, kicking and screaming out of context, make sure you just say, no, 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 that's about church discipline. That's not about those things. Okay, deep breath. Let's consider what's going on in Corinth. We have that basis. They would have had it. Paul was there 18 months. He would have laid that foundation for these people. Let's see what's going on here in Corinth. You know, if you've been with us, that false charges have been brought against Paul by these false teachers. Charges that Paul has spent the better part of three chapters defending himself against, right? He is saying, when I get there, you better have some reliable witnesses if you want to bring those charges back up. But that's not the most pertinent thing that he's saying. Contextually, Paul is saying that he, bl he plans to bring up some charges against some people when he gets there. He will attempt one more time to straighten out some of the issues in this wayward church, this time not by letter, this time in person. And this, this is very important. By Paul's use of Deuteronomy 19.15, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul is saying he is not going around the normal disciplinary process in the church. No, in fact, he is going to work through what Jesus has laid out in Matthew 18. Paul is not out on a witch hunt. Nothing is going to be done improperly. But Paul's faced church discipline with this church already. Back in... 1 Corinthians 5, when a man in the church was known to be having some sort of sexual affair with his stepmother, Paul told them, the corporate body, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, he says, purge that man out of the membership. He is in, living in unrepentant Sin. He told the congregation to do that. He didn't do it. He told them to do it. He went on to tell them in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who names the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, and this is still not a very American letter here, or greed or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. By the way, I fleshed this out when we were there, but that's probably talking about the Lord's table. An excluded person would not be allowed to come in and partake of the Lord's table. And I think you've heard us. If you've been here when we've taken the Lord's Supper, we're very clear on that point. But Paul instructed them in the past to do exactly what Jesus told them 
to do. We read earlier in this letter, 2 Corinthians, of a man whom the church had apparently excommunicated, a man who had confronted Paul during that painful visit. And of that man, Paul said in chapter 2, for such a one, the punishment by the majority, that's a key phrase, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So the the majority had excluded him, no doubt referring to some type of congregational vote. They probably didn't use Robert's rules of order, but they had some type of vote. And now Paul is calling on that same majority to reinstate him because the man had apparently finally repented. He had to go the the full length of the disciplinary process to do so, but he had finally repented. Listen, here's the point. Paul did not go around the discipline process in the past with this church. And he's not going to when he arrives back again in Corinth. On the contrary, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul is not changing gears, varying from what Jesus instructed or the way that he had worked in the past. No, he he expects the church to take the bull by the horns and do the right thing. So what sins is he talking about? We We don't have to wonder. We just looked at it in the previous passage. Look at... Verse 20 of chapter 12, Paul talked about a divisive attitude. And he says that it is exhibited by these traits. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul expected the church to handle these things through this process that Jesus outlined in Matthew 18. Look, these things must be addressed. Not only that, verse 21, sexual sin still prevailed in the church at Corinth. Impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. All three of those words refer to sexual sin in different ways. Both of these issues, divisiveness and sexual immorality, were addressed in 1 Corinthians. And they're still lingering. I should also mention the larger context. We know what's going on. False teachers were preaching a false gospel, another Jesus. Paul wrote that in chapter 11, verse 4. They were preaching something other than justification by faith alone. We don't know exactly what, but something other than that. And a significant minority in the church were following them, enough for Paul to write all of this. All of these issues, divisiveness, sexual immorality, and a false gospel, all of them misrepresent Christ in one way or another. And if left unchecked, they expose a major heart problem. They need to be handled by the corporate body. Now, this is not all the sins that the church would ever deal with. If someone is a murderer... For instance, the church would do the same process. This is not limited to only these sins. 
It just so happens that these are the ones that Paul expected to encounter when he got to Corinth, the ones that he has specifically mentioned. All right, really quickly, look at verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Look, Paul is serious. He has warned those who sinned before. Probably referring to 1 Corinthians, maybe even when he was there for that 18-month period and he told people to turn away from their old lifestyle. He obviously warned them when present on his second visit, that painful visit. We weren't given a whole lot about that visit earlier in this letter, but here we're told this. Paul warned them to flee from their sin. Now he's warning them again. David Garland writes, quote, Paul reminds them that he is not suddenly springing this threat on them. He's witnessed to this before, end quote. Look, we shouldn't just bring somebody up in a business meeting and vote them out. That's improper. That's wrong. That's what Paul isn't doing here. But he's not backing down. Why? Because Paul loves these people. He's not angry. Maybe righteously angry, but he, he loves these people and he's not giving up on them so easily. Spanking your kids, albeit necessary for every child, hurts the child's bottom. But it also hurts the heart of the parent. The same is true with church discipline. It is a painful process for all involved. But it is good for the church as a body and for the individual member. At least it is intended to be that. And so Paul is committed to it. Now let me just make sure we are clear here. None of us have the authority to reach into another assembly that we are not a member of and exercise a step in this disciplinary process. We do not. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Paul is an apostle. He is different than us. There are only 14 men that have held this office. One of them was Judas and was not even saved, right? That leaves the 11, Matthias and Paul, that are left. They are the only apostles. They carried a different level of authority than we do. Paul wrote this letter, scalding letter, to a church that he was not a member of. We don't have that type of ability to do that. I only mention that because that's not always left in check. It needs to be. We need to be worried about this church family here. Okay, back to that state of theology survey I spoke about in the introduction. The remedy to today's problem... You know, that, that is exposed in that survey. The remedy to today's problem is right here in this text. Rather than overlooking sin, rather than allowing men or, or women for that matter to promote unorthodox heresies, those things must be kept in check by this disciplinary process. And, and listen, brothers and sisters... This did not originate in some angry church council or some cult leader. 
Jesus taught this. Maybe not the Jesus everybody wants to post about on Facebook, but the Jesus of Scripture taught this process. And the entire goal of it is the spiritual health of the one that's being approached, the one involved in sin. You know, our society has really confused love, thinking that love is incompatible with discipline. Christians should know better. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. I know we often hear it say, spoil the rod, or, or, or spare the rod, spoil the child. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. And the same could be said about church members. So we don't carry out discipline on, on children or church members out of anger. Certainly not out of personality conflicts. Now, our duty is to keep the local church pure, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, but that is not the only reason we carry out church discipline. We are to make dead level certain that we are not affirming unbelievers as believers as much as is possible. Because we do not want people entering eternity confident they are saved when they aren't. Listen, if you truly want to mature in your faith, if you really want to be conformed to the image of Jesus and stand before Him one day as His child, faithfully having served Him, then you need a church that is willing to practice this process here. Honestly, churches today are often... Jacob touched on this earlier, but we are often little more than gatherings of independent individuals. We're not nearly as committed to one another as the Bible calls for, as Christian discipleship demands us to be. Let me read something that you all know about, but may not have read recently. Article 20 of our Articles of Faith here at this church. Here's what it says. Quote, we believe every church member should treat church membership as an office in the church in which there are duties that each member is both gifted for and responsible to use. Membership in a church is not a casual connection with a voluntary society like a country club where a person comes for the benefits so long as the dues aren't too high It is a citizenship, and citizenship is an office of governance. Once a church has affirmed an individual as a representative of Jesus, and thus a church member, that member becomes responsible both for personal discipleship and the discipleship of others. Such discipleship ministry should regularly occur both among church members and outside the assembly as the gospel is shared with every creature, end quote. That is our articles of faith. That is what we voted as a church to believe and practice. This is not optional. This is our duty as church members. A massive number of church members today are not saved. Not if Ligonier's 
hitting anywhere near accurate in that survey. Many do not display any evidence whatsoever of following Jesus. And the sad thing is nobody is telling them that they are going to burst hell wide open one day. And that's not love. What's love is to tell them before it's too late. Let me close this sermon with a quote by John MacArthur. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, here's what MacArthur writes, quote, If the church doesn't take sin seriously enough to take action against it, how can it expect the world to take the gospel of deliverance from sin seriously? End quote. Guys, listen, a lack of biblical discipline in a church destroys our witness to the holiness of God. It destroys our witness to mankind's need of a mediator between us and God. Jesus, by His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, as He paid the full debt of sin for everyone who would ever believe. That is the power of the cross that we sang about just a few moments ago. You know, the lost in the world often complain of hypocrites in the church. Let's be honest. There's some, there's some real truth to that today. Some of those complaints are actually legitimate. Not all. Not all. But some. And a lack of church discipline today in our society contributes to that. If we are concerned at all about the purity of the gospel, theologically, then we need to be concerned about it practically in the life of our members. If we love one another, that's what we've committed to as a church. If we love one another, let us love, or excuse me, let us be faithful in lovingly, that's a key word, lovingly warning each other when we see one another sin. Actual biblical sin, I mean, you, don't, you don't get to make it up. It's not a preference. It's not a scruple. It's actual biblical sin. But when we see that in one another's lives, we need to follow exactly what it says right here in Scripture. Look, I know this is heavy. I know we don't talk about it very often. But I know that it's needed or it wouldn't be in the Bible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Stand with me, if you will. Ben, will you dismiss us? And please pray for the food, blessing on the food, please.